0: You're listening to EU Watchdog
1: Radio. Welcome to a new episode of EU Watchdog Radio. My name is Hans van Scharen, media officer at Corporate Europe Observatory, also known as CEO. And welcome to part two of this special summer episode in which we tell the true story on how the European Union has been dealing with the pandemic during the past year and why the EU seems to have a deep love affair with Big Pharma. In two parts of this podcast, several experts explain that the European Commission, the executive branch of the EU, not only has a very Eurocentric way of dealing with the pandemic, but also acts and decides in complete secrecy on how it negotiates on our behalf with powerful pharmaceutical companies. In the first part of this podcast, CEO researchers Olivier Houdeman and Kenneth Haag explained what they found out about the weird and secretive ways of the European Commission and the Council. Their complete lack of transparency suits very well the agenda and business models of the powerful pharmaceutical industry. We are now July 2021 and the Covid-19 pandemic is still raging in many parts of the world. In countries like in Africa, in India, Indonesia and so on. And while many Europeans are happy to able to go on holidays and and again enjoy certain freedoms, thanks to their COVID-19 vaccine, in low- and middle-income countries, most people can only dream of having access to such a vaccine. The head of the World Health Organization warned on July 12th that the gap in COVID-19 supplies is hugely uneven and not equitable. He said countries and regions should not order more millions of doses before other countries have supplies to vaccinate their health workers and most vulnerable people, especially when the Delta variant is driving a new spike in COVID-19 cases and deaths. The production of vaccines need to be scaled up urgently, experts have been saying for many months. That is why, in October last year, South Africa and India tabled a proposal to the World Trade Organization, WTO, to temporarily suspend patents on COVID-19 vaccines and therapeutics. There is an international treaty that protects these patents and intellectual property rights, the so-called TRIPS Agreement. TRIPS stands for Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights. It is a treaty that exists since 1994 and basically gives companies hard law to protect their intellectual property. And although officially there are flexibilities in this treaty, uh, for example in case of public health emergencies, when countries can take the decision to not respect certain patents to produce cheaper generic medicines, as happened during the HIV-AIDS pandemic 20 years ago. But the so-called flexibilities in the TRIPS agreement are not that flexible and are so complex to use that they have hardly been used. Any country that decides to ignore the TRIPS agreement to protect the health of its citizens, thus risks to be sued. So this is why, again, India and South Africa proposed a so-called TRIPS waiver. And although the pharmaceutical sector lobby organization, FPIA, told the European Commission in December 2020 that this is an extreme measure for an unidentified problem, we know now that this was a ludicrous statement because there is an obvious and increasing lack of affordable vaccines and therapeutics around the globe. The scary part, however, is that the EU institutions seem to buy and still defend this big pharma nonsense. Many experts, scientists from all over the world, hundreds of NGOs, top politicians like US President Joe Biden and the Pope have argued in the past months that an important hurdle for that upscaling of vaccine production are patents and intellectual property rights. And also the refusal by Big Pharma to share technology. And also the EU keeps refusing this TRIPS waiver. The truth behind this is that the EU is de de facto blocking the increase of production because it wants to protect the competitiveness of its pharmaceutical sector by protecting its patents. Remember the famous quote, the vaccine must become a global common good, said, for example, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, in the spring of 2020. We know now those were empty words. And what did von der Leyen say on April twenty third during a press conference with Pfizer boss Burla at the Pfizer production plant in the Belgian town called Purs?
2: This place is also a symbol for the European Union's fairness and openness. Europe is producing vaccines for Europeans and for citizens around the world. We have exported more than 155 million doses of vaccine to over 87 countries worldwide since December. To be clear, we have exported as much as we have delivered to EU citizens. We are the pharmacy of the world and we Europeans take pride in this and we invite others to join because we all know nobody will be safe until everybody is
1: safe. Firstly, von der Leyen knows perfectly well that those European experts were mostly to rich and middle-income countries. So that is not some humanitarian act of Europe. It's called business and trade. And secondly, Pfizer, a symbol of fairness and openness, really? Pfizer is one of the architects of the TRIPS agreement and is also one of the strongest opponents of the TRIPS waiver. In this episode, I'll be talking with investigative journalist Priti Patnaik, based in Geneva, specialized in global health policy and editor of the Geneva Health Files. But first, we'll listen to Dimitri Einikel, expert of Doctors Without Borders, who explains why the proposals of the European Union to counter or derail the proposal of South Africa and India, are rather meaningless. Dimitri explains why the proposals of the EU to boost global production and access to vaccines and therapeutics will simply not work, and why even take might even take us backwards. And why, in times of a pandemic, this attitude of the European Union is quite shameful, Welcome, Dimitri, to this uh, episode of uh, EU Watchdog Radio. Um, we are now July 2021. Um, Belgium and many other European countries are doing quite well when it comes to the vaccination program. Um, a lot of Europeans are very happy to be vaccinated and to be able to travel again uh, to go on holidays. But if we look at the global south, the picture is uh, obviously very, very different. Can you, what can you say about the, the actual state of play when it comes to uh, to access to 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 uh, vaccines and therapeutics in, in the rest of the world?
0: Yeah, thank you, Hansen. the situation remains very grim um, and, and very dire. In fact, there's really a, a lack of, of of tools available, um, particularly in lower and middle-income countries. Uh, you know, bigger parts of Africa and Asia, Latin America. Um, if, we, if we look at the current picture, um, um, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres just said a few weeks ago that in Africa alone, um, only about two percent of the population has been able to receive even a COVID nineteen vaccine. Um, whereas we know, as we know, in the situation right now in the European Union, but it's a bit similar in, in, in the United States and the UK. Um, These numbers rise to to 40, 50, sometimes over 50% of the population that has been vaccinated already, uh, sometimes being fully vaccinated. Um, So the situation is quite uh, different between uh, the the richer parts of the world and and unfortunately the, the, the poorer countries in the world, I would argue. Um, and while there are, there are obviously differing numbers between countries and between regions, generally we can we can definitely say that that the inequity is is, is very uh, very big between the US the United States uh, the United States Europe uh, the United kingdom and, and and as I said Africa Asia and Latin America. and this this is not only for the vaccines, uh, the same accounts for for diagnostics. it's often a bit overlooked. But there are really uh, shortages of diagnostics, uh, particularly in lower and middle income countries and, and Africa, um, which means that, that there's a lack of, of, of test capacity to test if people actually have COVID-19. So that puts into question how much we really know about the prevalence of the disease in certain, in certain countries or in certain regions. And it also um, takes away an essential tool uh, to contain the pandemic. Um, and 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 to take control, yeah, to take control of the pandemic, to advise people uh, correctly on, on on what they should do in case they they potentially would would uh, would 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 uh, be infected with COVID nineteen. Um, and considering as well that if you have a lack of vaccines, it's really essential that at least you have the the diagnostics uh, available to you. So you know. Having shortages of both these these elements or these tools is really really problematic, um, and and we can see right now in the numbers as well that there are new waves uh, taking place of COVID-19, deadly waves um, of COVID-19 taking place in a number of of, of countries um, around the world and a couple, number of regions, uh, different parts of Africa. Numbers have risen dramatically of of COVID-19 cases. Uh, Hospitals are filling up with with patients uh, in in in, uh, in bad uh, conditions. Uh, people are dying, obviously, of, of COVID nineteen. Uh, this is happening as well in in Latin America. We have seen it in in the Middle East, sometimes in a number of countries in Asia. Um, so this is this is this should should not come as a surprise. It's it's uh, these these waves were predicted, and and more contagious variants are are definitely. Um, spreading, um, and as long as large parts of the population are left unvaccinated, they are very, very vulnerable to uh, and, and exposed to, to these new variants.
1: Thank you, Dimitri. Um, indeed, uh, at the start of the uh, pandemic. Um, top EU politicians like, for example, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, said uh, vaccines should become a global common good. Um, What we see today, that is not the case. Belgium for example is even now uh, proposed to start vaccinating uh, adolescents teenagers whereas I, if i understood it well the added value of that is maybe not uh, so so big uh, and at the same time um, as you just described uh, even in in africa uh, uh, health workers are not uh, don't have access to vaccines it has often been said that this is also a self defeating uh, approach by the european union in in the sense that if if uh, um, large populations in, in other parts of the world are not vaccinated, this will lead to um, to mutations. Is that still... Uh, do you agree?
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, definitely up to the extent that we need more production to vaccinate more quickly. It, it's it's less of the issue of, of, of who to vaccinate with the limited doses that we have. But we need to upscale the production of vaccines and other tools also, uh, and treatments, diagnostics, to have sufficient quantity available for people as fast as possible to contain new variants, um, there is a risk. There is a risk that these variants at some point may find a way to side, sidestep a bit the, the protection of the vaccines. That's a hypothetical situation still, but it's a, it is a situation that can exist. Um, uh so for sure we we need to be able to to try to prevent that from happening and the only way to do that is really by by making as soon as possible um as many vaccine doses as possible available to people and particularly to allow them uh, to be produced around the world uh, that we're not concentrating production capacity for these vaccines only in in one part of the world uh, the united states the uk and europe so the West, as, as it's often referred to, um, but that we really enable vaccine production to take place in different places around the world and also allow um, the producers there to adapt vaccines to variants that may emerge because it's far better to um, quickly contain new variants where they emerge rather than let them spread and then having to revaccinate people that were already vaccinated uh with with covid-19s to protect them from these variants which is a bit the, the the trend we are going in uh to be to be honest there uh, we we've seen today announcement that that biontech wants to to produce um, and third doses or booster doses adapted to new variants. <clears throat> I'm not sure or we're not sure that that this is really needed, these, these booster doses, or it remains to be seen whether these are really needed. Um, but for sure that's 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 the, the strategy that is being put put forward by, by the pharmaceutical industry. And we we so we risk revaccinating people that already received uh, two doses uh and and are fully vaccinated uh, while at the same time a large part of the global population remains vaccinated and there the the vaccine or sorry the disease can can spread freely with all the ris- risks and results uh uh that, that 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 come from that
1: yeah exactly now you mentioned the key issue here and that is uh how uh, can the world boost the production of vaccines in in uh, as, as quickly as possible so in october 2nd last year south africa india proposed at the world trade organization in geneva uh, uh, they they tabled a proposal for a waiver of the trips agreement and so basically to suspend uh, for a, 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 a specific period the intellectual property rights that companies like biontech have over this uh, mrna or other technology um, can you can you explain a bit europe has been opposing this ever since. Um, what what can you say in general about the the european uh, the European attitude here?
0: Yeah, so from the start that this proposal has been tabled by india South africa and which which is now supported uh, by more than sixty countries uh, around the world. so it has really, you know, massive global support, and that's that's formal support. There's also more informal support where governments have stated they support the idea without necessarily signing up uh, formally on, on the proposal itself. But um, there is massive global support for this initiative. Um for the TRIPS waiver, which waives intellectual property rights, which includes vaccines, um patent patents, sorry, uh, but also in other forms of intellectual property rights. Um, Europe has been very much opposed to, to this idea, has been uh, questioning really the need for this initiative, whether it's it's a valid tool that resolves uh the, the, the problems of, of access. Um and, and yeah, to our concern, to be honest, because this delays the, the discussion, uh, this complicates the discussion. We don't really see constructive efforts to, to make sure that, that this initiative um, it can, can be brought forward to a point where, where it can be uh, implemented. Rather, the European Union, together with, with the United Kingdom and Switzerland, have been heavily stepping on the brakes. Um, as known, the U.S. has come aboard, uh, on board behind the idea as well. But unfortunately, Europe uh, you know, remains very much opposed to, to the idea. Um, the, the waiver itself covers multiple tools. So it's not only about vaccines. Um, it's also about diagnostics and treatments. And, um, you know, it's generally known that intellectual property rights are a barrier for production for all these tools. Uh, companies have the legal right to prevent other producers from reproducing what they what they offer on the market. Uh, that's what the intellectual property rights are for in the end, and and that's also what is, what is still the situation today. There are other barriers. We don't deny that there are other barriers. There will need to be financing. some technologies it may be needed that some some technologies need to be shared as well or 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 certain certain um, uh, cell lines need to be shared etc in order to upscale production quickly it doesn't mean that producers and developers in uh, lower and middle-income countries cannot develop uh, or reproduce some of these tools themselves which it may be possible technically but it may take time obviously if you share the technology things can go a lot faster so it's this is where the european commission has been in my opinion, trading off the sharing of technologies uh, against or one problem against the other, if I can put it that way. It has been emphasizing the need for sharing of technology um, and thereby denying other other, uh, governments the ability to say that they want to address one of the other barriers, which is intellectual property rights. And that's the one that is most comprehensive. That's the one that covers all the tools because you don't need to share the technologies for all... um, for all, all all tools that you may need. As I mentioned, diagnostics and treatments, it's 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 less a matter of, of technology sharing. Um, that, that is more the issue for, for, for vaccines. So um, it's a bit of a of, of an of an dishonest debate in my opinion that has taken place so far um, by, by, the, by the European Union and the European Commission in particular. Um, where I would argue that if you um, if you really want to upscale global production you look at all the available tools, right? And and you try to make it possible. And this is where one problem or one barrier is traded off against another. If you if you if you we don't agree, they basically say we don't agree that intellectual property rights is a barrier, it's it's the sharing of technology. But um, you need to address that problem as well, and we don't see much initiatives taking place by the European Commission and the European Union to really share the technology of those companies to producers and lower and middle-income countries. We actually explicitly asked them already, and we didn't get any confirmation that any steps have been taken so far to share technologies to the global south. So um, this is where the, you know we see we see really the European Union stepping on the brake, um, which which hampers uh, the global production of these tools. And as I mentioned, it's really by enabling diversified global production that um, we're going to be able to contain this disease far more quickly. And that's not just medi frontier saying that. That's also what the World Health Organization and many others are saying as well. We need all available tools. We need sharing of technology, but we also need the RIPs waiver. We will need financing, etc. We know there are many layers that will need to be addressed to really... Um, to global production but as we have seen in the past year many things can be done when there's political will things can go very fast there were no covid 19 vaccines a year ago and now we have them we are rolling them out so it's just a matter of political will taking the right decisions and making some financing available and things can evolve quite quickly
1: mm-hmm. And this uh, all sounds uh, quite in, in stark contrast with the words that I already cited, uh, the, the vaccine should become a global common good. Um, now, we are now July 21. Um, there are negotiations going on, in still at the WTO in Geneva. And um, just a month ago, I think it was the 4th of June, the European Union um uh, to 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 counter with these uh, negotiations on the trips waiver um proposed another uh well another set of of, of uh, solutions um uh, and one is about um making it uh, or improving the compulsory licensing um that is already uh, included in the um in the trips agreement but this is a bit technical C- can you maybe first try to explain what is meant with with this uh, compulsory licensing.
0: Yeah, but let me go back one step first to um, the proposal itself and Mm -hmm. what we've seen in the past year and a half, because it's true what you say that since the start of the pandemic, the European Union has been quite vocal about making vaccines a global public good. And, you know, we were very pleased to hear that language and the commitments that were taken at the beginning of this pandemic. But it's a bit intriguing what happened there, because... Soon, I mean, not soon, but in the months following that, we have seen that um, the European Commission uh, had a, had an, an agreement with European Union member states of the purchase of of COVID nineteen vaccines, the jointly the joint purchase of COVID nineteen vaccines for European populations, um, and it's written in there in the annex. It's a small clause, but it's in the annex of, of that agreement. That the European Commission um, is is basically asked to to promote the sharing of intellectual property rights, um, to or, or to to promote access to lower and middle income countries, and particularly particularly also the sharing of intellectual property rights, which basically means make sure that there is also production that can take place in lower and middle income countries as part of the purchase agreements. So there was uh, with with the pharmaceutical companies, I mean, so there was basically an ask from the European Union member states to the European Commission, when you discuss and negotiate with these companies for the purchase of the vaccines, make sure that part of that agreement is that also production can take place in the rest of the world. That was what asked. And we haven't seen that happening. And after that, we um, saw that the European Commission published um, a vaccine strategy and a number of communications that follow, follow that, official communications from the European Commission. And it's intriguing that there, the wording was quite different. There, the emphasis was uh, constantly and consistently on European production of vaccines, European production of vaccines for Europe and the rest of the world. So we saw a narrowing from a scope in the initial discussions and, and, and as we just said, the initial announcements by von der Leyen and, and other world leaders about the global public goods to we want to produce these vaccines in Europe. Um, and then export them to the rest of the world or make them available for the rest of the world. Donate them, sell them. Okay, but they are produced in Europe. That That's clearly defined in the strategies and in the official communications. And that's still part of the strategy of the European Union. Um, after that, and, and then I mean earlier this year, we've seen a, num- a number of other communications. Uh, Commissioner Breton, uh, for internal market, who also had the, the task force, the vaccine task force, said that the European Union should become the biggest vaccine producer by the end of the year, and only the US and Europe are able to produce COVID-19 vaccines. And also European Council President Charles Michel has written the same on a blog post that he put online, uh, referring to critique about international solidarity. We will be the biggest producer. In the world, we are the only ones that can produce them, and we will make them available for the rest of the world. Now, we know that there is vaccine production capacity outside Europe. Uh, we know there's, there's production capacity available in a number of countries, depending from vaccine to vaccine, of course, uh, w- which ones are, are more quicker to upscale, but there is definitely production capacity. So it's, it's not true that only in US and Europe, these vaccines can be produced. Um, but as I said, that that's still a little bit a line of thought. And we can still see that in um, the, the proposal that was smi- submitted at the World Trade Organization uh, by the European Union, the so called counter proposal uh, to the trips waiver proposal, because it's it's it again. If you look at the and you need to look at the details of the language, eh? because what it says, it starts with um, or it, it actually has three elements. It has elements on the need to upscale production, restrictions uh, on export bans, and then the discussions about compulsory licensing. But if you look at the, the language, really the very detailed language about the upscaling of production of vaccines, it actually says. We need to encourage member states to upscale production for supply to lower- and middle-income countries. And then it expands on a number of steps that can be taken. But it says supply to. And in the last line of that paragraph, it says further action can also be considered to enable and facilitate production in lower- and middle-income countries. But that's almost a small phrase at the very at the end of a longer paragraph where it says further action can be considered. But that's not a commitment at all. That's just a consideration that can be accepted or rejected, but there's no detail at all. And it shows how much the emphasis is still on We need to produce more to make it available to others rather than enable others to produce it for themselves, which, as I said, from the outset of the pandemic, in our view, and this this argument still stands for us, should be the basis of how this pandemic should be tackled. We need more production in many sites around the world rather than concentrated production in one part of the world. Um, And so coming back to the point on on the rest of the proposal and particularly on compulsory licensing, this is really a bit of a disingenuous proposal by the European Union. Um, let me first clarify that compulsory li- compulsory licensing actually allows um, overruling patent protection. So it, it allows a government to say, look, we're in a situation of, of a public health um, Yeah, emergency, but it doesn't necessarily have to be an emergency. In the interest of public health, that's actually what the TRIPS waiver uh, um, actually is is more or less saying. In the interest of public health, there are circumstances where government is allowed to overrule patent protection and allow generic um, production to take place in its country either to, to enable uh, competition, that to, to, so the price can drop, or because there's insufficient quantities available, etc. So, it's an important tool. We don't deny that. We don't deny that compulsory licensing is a very important tool that is already enshrined in international law, and it should be used by governments, and they are doing that, particularly outside Europe. Governments are using that tool from time to time, in the interest of, pu- of public health. Um, But what is disingenuous about the proposal by the European Commission is that compulsory licensing has a number of limitations. And the proposal of the European Commission does not address these limitations. And it's particularly these limitations that are a problem for the use of this tool in a pandemic. And these are, for example, the fact that it's quite difficult to export. You can, you can produce for your own population, but to export it to another country that may not be able to produce, it's a little bit more complicated. There are a number of steps that need to be taken. You need to repackage all the medicines, you need to recolor the medicines. You need to be very exact in the quantities that you that, that the country that needs it, the importing country needs, needs to be very specific on the, num, on the quantities that it needs, um, as well as the exporting country in, in their notification. But if you need more, you need to start the procedure all over again. And um, so the, the, comp- the export um, system is quite complex. Um, there are many steps to take, and it's, it's a very heavy administrative burden. Um, and they don't really tackle the key issues of that export mechanism. And what do we know in this pandemic is that. It's exactly that export mechanism that needs to function really well. Such as the fact that, that uh, as we know, it's it's an international problem. It's not a problem of the pandemic is not a problem of one country alone. Um, we know that there are some countries who have sufficient production capacity or some production capacity but there are others who have almost nothing so they need to be able to collaborate to import to export um sometimes to collaborate across countries because some parts of a vaccine may be produced in one country while another part of the vaccine can only be produced in another country so it makes it very if you cannot export very efficiently and effectively it makes it very hard to use this tool in a pandemic, and to 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 um, to illustrate a bit of difficulties with the export mechanism related to compulsory licensing. It has only been used once, and it, it took several years um, to get the HIV medicines from from Canada to Rwanda um, because of all the different steps that had to be taken uh, before the medicine could actually be shipped and, and and arrived to to Rwanda. So it shows you how how complex the system is. Um, so, that's one limitation of compulsory licensing. The other limitation of compulsory licensing is that, yes, it addresses the patent barriers, but it does not address the other intellectual property right barriers, such as trade secrets um, and data exclusivity, which has to do with access to medical data and, and regulatory approval. So, you approving um, to get the approval to, to sell your products uh, in, in a given country. In Europe, this is done by the European Medicines Agency. Mm-hmm. Um, it means if you do not get access to that data, um, that you can, if, if a generic competitor would come, um, and it comes with a file and says, "Look, I have exactly the same medicine as 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 uh, the other product here by, let's say, uh, GSK or Johnson and Johnson, um, it's exactly the same product." But if you cannot refer to that data, it means you need to do your cl- clinical trials again. So you cannot, you you know, you you're not allowed to sell your product again unless you do the very costly clinical trials on maybe thousands of people to prove that your product is exactly the same is as safe and effective as what the other product from the uh, the originator company is like so that's that's another barrier right and then as i mentioned that's also and then the aspect of trade secrets which has to do with the knowledge on how to produce a certain uh, product and and there's a, currently Legally, companies can protect knowledge like this, that it's that it's impossible for others and even prohibited for others to access this, this kind of information. And compulsory licensing does not address this. And the waiver, as it is proposed, does address all these problems. So it's far more comprehensive. So what the European Union is doing is trying to have a discussion on a tool which has far more limited impact than the waiver, and then rediscuss some elements of compulsory licensing that were already agreed upon. So actually, we're not going forward. We're actually going backwards because we are discussing issues that were already agreed. Um, and in that sense, it's a disingenuous attempt to just sideline, delay, distract the discussions on the waiver. Because there's um, if, if there was be a genuine commitment by the European Union to solve the problems, they would come with a proposal on how to really boost compulsory licensing and address all the difficulties there are with compulsory licensing and address them. But that's not what it is. They went a step backwards.
1: Sidelining, delaying, um, um, uh, distracting. Those are exactly the tactics that uh, big corporations often use when they want to uh, avoid uh, any new legislation or regulation that they don't like. Um, but it's very worrying if you, um, you know, analyze that the, uh, the one of the main European institutions is uh, using these same very tactics. Now, um, to be the devil's advocate, I guess that the... Um, uh, European diplomats in Geneva they will counter what you just said by saying you know no we really want to negotiate to improve these um, compulsory licensing um, um, uh, possibilities in uh, in the TRIPS uh, agreement um, we want to negotiate about about those but but you just explained that that is basically not possible
0: Well, it is possible to negotiate on those aspects but the reality is that first of all then you then you need to come with a proposal that addresses the limitations not on aspects because there are a number of details that i did not discuss now in the proposal of the european union on compulsory licensing um but uh, such as the fact that that the pandemic is a legitimate ground to 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 allow compulsory licensing and not have to negotiate with 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 the company that that holds the the intellectual property rights mm-hmm. but this is generally accepted this is already accepted among member states so why discuss something that is accepted already? Um, there, there's also an aspect on, on affordability that they state: look, we we want uh, products that co- that are that are uh, produced with compulsory licensing are, are affordable, uh, including the remuneration, remuneration to to the company that holds the, the intellectual property rights. But there are guidelines in place already; they're already agreed, and nobody contests them. Mm-hmm. And the final point they make about um, notification with the export mechanism. So they do make a reference to the export system with compulsory licensing, where they say if you notify the World Trade Organization that you want to export, you can use one document and list several countries. But again, that exists already. It's even stated on the document itself, countries you want to export to not country, countries. So you can already list several countries. So all of this has already been, 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 been accepted. Um, and 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 in that sense, it's 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 not really moving forward. If if the Commission made a bold proposal, you know, listing several of the limitations that are already already well known as well of compulsory licensing and how to overcome them, we are, we would have a different different discussion. But this is not taking place. And particularly in terms of speed, we also take into account that it could take quite a bit of time to negotiate on changes to the TRIPS Agreement and, and the different amendments, etc., on the compulsory licensing. While the waiver is an option available in the TRIPS agreement, that needs to be active, that can be activated. So it's a different procedure that can take place. Of course, you can disco- discuss and negotiate off the, the, the different uh, scope of the waiver, the duration of the waiver, etc. and you can negotiate on that. But it's a tool that is actually available already. It exists in the system.
1: Right, thanks so much for clarifying all this. Um, coming to the end of, of this talk, um, I think there is. It is getting clear that um, there is two big contrasting uh, statements done by European politicians one is as I mentioned before the uh, vaccine as a a common public good the other is uh, let's keep production uh, as much as possible in Europe and so it's the humanitarian um, um, uh, boasting by the European Union versus European as a um, as a uh, uh, industrial champion uh, and a Europe that wants to protect the competitiveness of uh, its uh, pharmaceutical industry. And it seems that in this pandemic, those two big uh, challenges um, cannot be really reconciled. I was told by a member of the European Parliament that when talking to uh, colleagues from the the Christian Democrat family uh, EPP... They said, "Well, obviously, we want to protect the interests of BioNTech and keeping the mRNA uh, technology um, as much uh, as possible in in Europe." So there seems to be a sort of la- political dishonesty um, uh, about uh, about the 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 real uh, the real, uh, the real th- yeah the interest that that uh, European leaders are are pursuing, and I want to. Quote uh, the EU ambassador to the WTO, who is uh, Jao Aguiar Machado, um, when uh, a journalist from uh, Geneva Health Files asked him the question that um, it seems that the European Union is more driven by protectionist uh, industrial policy than motivations to safeguard uh, the public health. Um, The ambassador answered no, on the contrary, because basically then uses two arguments. One, um, the European Union is a leader when it comes to uh, exporting um, effective vaccines to the rest of the world, the 350 million doses that have been exported so far. And then the other argument is, um, we are a major contribu- contributor to Covax. Now, later on, with uh, with the um, the uh, editor of uh, Geneva Geneva Health Files, I will talk about um, Covax. But how would you react to these two arguments uh, that uh, that the, the ambassador uses to counter the uh, the protectionist um, uh, accusation?
0: Well, I don't think that that the European Union is any anyway, opposed to, you know, any health concerns and, and ending this pandemic at the global level, I think there are genuine commitments that they make to try to end this pandemic. But I don't think it's correct that the, the industrial strategies or considerations that I described before about producing um, COVID-19 vaccines in, in Europe and exporting them elsewhere... Um, um, I, I think it's I think it's quite clear that these still precede the other concerns of 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 making production available elsewhere. Um, I mean, in in a way, it's 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 rather simple. His arguments do not really dispel that, to be honest. That that the industrial uh, concerns or competitive concerns still precede because Covax will need to buy its doses from somewhere, right? So that means that we're going to buy them from from companies based in the US and in Europe, until now at least. That's that's where these companies are based, because there are no... COVAX doesn't buy, um, for example, the Chinese or the Russian vaccine so far. <coughs> so that's one aspect. The second, and, and by the way, I, I appreciate that the European Union is one of the biggest donors or, or even the biggest donor to COVAX eh, financially, but <coughs> not not in doses so far. There's there's not really a lot of dose sharing so far to, to COVAX which is really needed in the short term. Um, and secondly, when it comes to exporting, well, again, yes, the European Union um, exports doses, although we have to take that with a pinch of salt. The European Union does not itself export doses. It allows exports of doses. Uh, it's not the property of the European Union. It's just that compared to the United States and the UK in, or uh, other countries, indeed, the European Union doesn't block exports. So, I think it's a very, very narrow interpretation of international solidarity and and, um, and efforts to stop a global pandemic is not blocking exports to countries that really need these vaccines, because that's what it really is. Um, Nevertheless, it's true that the European Union does efforts, has exported uh, doses, um, half of of, of what is being produced in Europe, more or less.
1: But to which country? Um,
0: well that's what I wanted to come to, but the majority oh, yeah. of these countries are indeed uh, G7 countries. It's Canada, United United Kingdom, <clears throat> Australia, if I remember well, uh, Japan was among them, etc. It's the richer parts of the, the richer countries of the world that are the biggest recipients of these vaccines. Um, we don't have all the details of all the countries where they are shipped to, but for sure the, the poorer countries are, are among the minority of, that received uh, or received a minority of, of these vaccines.
1: So, how do you see this evolve? Um, do we need first, like we have seen a long time ago with the HIV uh, epidemic, much more people dying before the European Union would become come under pr- enough pressure to basically change uh, its position?
0: Unfortunately, the reality seems to go in that direction. I don't know um, what, what the future will bring and what the European Union will do. It's it's a combination of options that will produce the best results. Huh? That's that's the reality, and we need we need different. I mean, different steps have to be taken, uh, as I mentioned. Uh, financially sharing technologies, lifting intellectual property rights, <clears throat> but you know, trying to constantly circumvent and and, and prevent uh, you know the production elsewhere to take place. Um, by just focusing on one aspect and then not acting upon it, that, that this has to stop. And if you're really committed to anti-global pandem- pandemic and the lack of um, availability, then you take all the necessary steps, right, rather than the opposite, and constantly question every step that 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 is needed to to, to upscale production. Mm.
1: Thank you so much, uh, Dimitri, for this talk and for your uh, sharing your knowledge with us. Welcome, Priti Patnaik, to this podcast. Um, first of all, you work as a journalist um, in Geneva and you produce the Geneva Health Files. Could you could you briefly explain what, what you are doing uh, as, as journalistic work there?
2: Uh, thank you so much uh, for the invite. Uh, first of all, I'm an admirer of the work of Corporate Europe Observatory, so it's an honor to be here. Um, yes, I'm uh, Priti Patnaik. I'm the founding editor of Geneva Health Files. So this is um, an interdisciplinary journalistic initiative from Geneva which is the capital of global health. So we essentially report on global health from the lens of uh, politics, law, trade and governance. Uh, we offer a bi-weekly newsletter and uh, you can follow us at genevahealthfiles.substack.com. So we've been reporting on the pandemic um, and on the policy making at both WHO and the WTO And we have been tracking the TRIPS waiver discussions um, right from the beginning.
1: I can confirm that is a very valuable reading and very in-depth reading uh, the the newsletters that you produce. Thanks for all that work. Now to to dive into the issue of the uh, the uh, COVID-19 response Um, in spring. 2020, when the COVID-19 global pandemic became officially recognized, let's say, by WHO and, and other actors, there seemed to have been a lot of global optimism concerning the solidarity that many experts says uh, would be needed to overcome the pandemic. And um, just to name one famous uh, European politician, uh, the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, um, and her slogan is often repeated since, Uh, she said, we are only safe until we are all safe. Um, And so uh, she also said that the cure or vaccine that would be um, um, uh, produced should become a global common good. Now we are more than one year later, and um, as you know, many Europeans seem to be very happy with their vaccination rates and and the fact that they can uh, regain a bit of their freedom and then go even on holidays and stuff. But The virus is still raging um, in in crowded and huge countries like Indonesia, uh, India, South Africa, Brazil, among others. So how do you look back on this and uh, what do you think has happened with this notion of global solidarity?
2: Um, I think in my opinion, uh, the word uh, solidarity uh, has become a much uh, abused uh, uh, phrase in uh, recent times. Let's say something like an empty phrase, um, while there is a, it makes for, Um, a good political statement, uh, but uh, sadly it has not been followed up uh, by by actions in general um, uh, in international policy making. And this is not just about the EU, but also uh, more generally uh, across the world. Um, So what we are facing today in June 2021 um, uh, is essentially um, to an extent an orchestrated scarcity uh, of vaccines and medical products. Uh, the tragedy is that many had warned that this kind of uh, you know, situation of scarcity will undoubtedly arrive but not enough leaders who had the uh, capacity to take action uh, paid heed to this uh, warning. Um, and as far as uh, the eu's position is concerned um, i think they they made um, you know a lot of uh, uh, correct uh, politically correct statements um, and um, and to an extent the, the intent might have been there um, and let's not forget that uh, the eu has um, actually exported 350 million uh, vaccine doses if i'm not mistaken that is almost three times more than what the um, the Covax facility has has distributed as on as on today uh, however having said that you know earlier this year we saw uh, eu impose export restrictions uh, essentially already exacerbating um, an acute um, uh, scarcity scenario um, and then uh, we saw a number of um, uh, sort of regulatory approvals for vaccine candidates uh, that some could argue were 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 uh, uh, not strictly insulated from from uh, politics um and uh, and then the the most recent case uh, of of eu policy making that has raised heckles is uh, is the eu vaccine certificates that have um, you know have not recognized certain WHO-recognized vaccine candidates. Um, And that impedes uh, travelers who who don't have uh, the uh, EU-approved vaccines, who have not got the EU-approved vaccines. So all of these actions uh, taken together, um, I feel, are contrary to the stated position of the European Union. Um, uh, But at the same time, you you must remember that ultimately, uh, we are at this point where uh, it's an extremely uh, lucrative uh, opportunity for companies and countries uh, alike and you are at this point where you are actually talking of future markets uh, for these vaccines uh, you know going forward in the medium to, to long term um so any country that works in its self interest um you know this is this is market dynamics, and and I think that uh, the EU is not insulated uh, from this. Um, so, and therefore, you see now um, EU taking on a stronger uh, trade diplomacy role, and that's showing up in their bilateral um, uh, investments, let's say uh, in Africa, for example. Um, so I think um, so I think that uh, yes, they might have been uh, driven by the spirit of solidarity, uh, but. Um, uh, I think that that is also underscored uh, by a lot of different political, uh, commercial, and diplomatic considerations.
1: Thank you so much, Pretty. Um, so, just to refer back to something you said um, in your in your answer, um, you, you referred to the fact that the WHO has recognised several vaccines that are not uh, allowed or not uh, recognised by the European Union. Are are these the Chinese and the Russian vaccines, for example? And and also the fact that you published stories about how. Indeed, this is limiting um, free uh, people to travel and to basically pursue their careers and their, um, yeah, the functioning of their 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 practical lives uh, are are being hampered by by this European position, right? Uh,
2: yes, I I, w- I was referring essentially um, to the AstraZeneca vaccine produced by the Serum Institute of India um, that is not part of the uh eu vaccination uh, certificate um uh, as far as the chinese vaccines are concerned yes they have um uh, received emergency use authorization uh the russian vaccine uh, uh sputnik um we um, has not yet received uh who uh, authorization uh, but uh, i think the the conversation around the russian vaccine and um uh, the european medicines agencies um uh, approval uh, processes around that is a is a whole different uh, conversation, and um, uh, it, it's more complicated than 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 what uh, than what meets the eye. But I was referring to the AstraZeneca vaccine um, that has got the WHO emergency use listing, uh, but has not been recognised um, uh, by by uh, the European Union. Um, it's problematic because. Uh, You know, the WHO emergency use listing relies on stringent regulatory approvals. um, And in fact, uh, uh, the WHO itself relies on the EMA uh, for for these uh, decisions. So it's a bit strange that that EU would not um, recognize uh, uh, the AstraZeneca version produced by Serum Institute of India, which forms the backbone of the COVAX facility. So a large part of the developing world have received this vaccine
1: right well i i hope this is not a, a reflection of the uh, not uh, not at all love affair between the european commission and astrazeneca as they have been uh, in court recently but let's put this aside now um you very uh, clearly um, pointed out to the the trade and the commercial uh, aspects that, um, that play a role in this. And I think we, we should go more in, in, into that uh, later. But first of all, when um, you mentioned already the COVAX facility, um, when European politicians or policymakers refer to the European solidarity spirit, they often um, uh, refer to the fact that they have uh, donated um, billions to Covax, or they will um, um, uh, send uh, vaccines to Covax that then will distribute it to the global south. But can you maybe uh, explain to us first what is Covax? What is the Covax facility precisely, and what is the role of uh, its basically uh, parent organization, Gavi? What, what is the role they play within the global community uh, or the WHO? Um, when trying to address the the COVID-19 crisis? Um,
2: So, we have to just take a step back to look at uh, the origins of the COVAX facility. Uh, So, the COVAX facility is part of the vaccines pillar of the ACT Accelerator. And the ACT Accelerator, you will recall, was set up in May 2020 um, when... uh, WHO's donors, Gates Foundations and um, you know, large European um, uh, countries came together and set this up and the private sector is also part of that accelerator and WHO has a coordinating capacity. Mm-hmm. So the COVAX facility basically fits in, in the context of an EU-backed um, uh, system, in, let's say. And um, so it was set up as an international mechanism uh, to procure vaccines in bulk, Um Uh, on the back of advanced market commitments to vaccine manufacturers. Um, So basically you had about um, uh, more than 90 low and lower middle-income countries um, that were promised to be um, sort of uh, served by the COVAX facility. And the fact that this facility would uh, raise funds in order to make vaccines available to to low and low middle income countries. And at the same time, the facility was also um, open to um, high income and upper middle income countries uh, who could um, uh, buy vaccines from the COVAX facility. And they had a lot of latitude um, in what kind of vaccines they could buy and when they could buy and so on and so forth. Um, So in principle, right at the um, uh, inception of it, you had two two categories of countries: those who could pay for themselves and those who would depend on the facility to buy the vaccines for them. Um, but what happened is, um, you know, this was a lifetime opportunity for vaccine manufacturers. They had uh, they were presented with an unprecedented global demand for their products. So ideally. Uh, Gavi, that legally administers the COVAX facility, should have had all the negotiating power to to really uh, procure these vaccine candidates from manufacturers uh, at the price and at the at the pace uh, uh, promised. Uh, but in reality, what happened was. Um, Uh, COVAX was stuck at the back of the queue because they simply did not anticipate um, lots of bilateral deals that high income and upper middle income countries struck with vaccine manufacturers. So as a result, what happened um, is that a lot of the countries um, ended up waiting for the COVAX facility and have not got uh, their vaccines. the goal of the facility is to provide two billion doses by the end of 2021. Uh, by now, they should have ordered, um, uh, you know, upwards of 400 million doses um, at least by the end of June 2021. But they have uh, barely managed to distribute about 100, 100 million doses in 135 countries. Um, but you know, as we as we know that it's a fraction of what was initially intended. So, as a result, the virus has spread, it has mutated, and it has decimated health systems. Um, So, so that's where the COVAX facility stands. Um, Although there are expectations that they may be able to meet the target of, you know, uh, distributing 2 billion doses by the end of the year. uh, But we know that even at the beginning, these were pretty modest targets of reaching about 20 to 30 percent of the population in low and lower middle income
1: countries. Yes, indeed, the, the recently there have been uh, um, quite some very critical uh, publications about how COVAX functions. And um, the, the the bottom line of these publications was that um, to efficiently curb the, the epidemic, COVAX is a failed answer. Would you agree with this very harsh um, analysis? Um, and 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 yeah, there are other reasons that are maybe beyond the um, let's say the management of Covax, for example, the fact that the Serum Institute in India has stopped uh, delivering um, vaccines to Covax. What is your view on that?
2: Um, I think um, the world wanted the Covax facility to uh, to succeed, um, and. Uh, but the, but the fact is that this was not planned. Uh, this was not planned effectively. Um, and uh, at the very beginning, they did not uh, broad base uh, the number of suppliers they were dependent on. If you are promising to vaccinate most of the world and you are relying on too few suppliers, that's a very risky strategy. Um, and even if you take the example of Serum Institute of India, why did they? Why why did they? Um, depend only on the Serum Institute of India uh, why did uh, the Gates Foundation um, that's one of the backers uh, of uh, uh, Gavi um, and has invested in the Serum Institute of India for for this particular transaction uh, they they could have you know had a number of other suppliers um, but those kinds of decisions um, were not made in anticipation of a potential crunch hmm. um, the issue of the issue of uh, India withholding um, uh, vaccine doses, um, you know, that were commercially, um, um, you know, the Serum Institute of India was commercially obliged uh, to share uh, those doses with the rest of the world. Um, it's it's not it's not clear um, how this will be resolved because Gavi and India have had a special relationship, and and Gavi had already had always. Um, Treated India as not just as a vaccines producer, but also a potential vaccines market. Um, so it's not clear how how that relationship will now evolve going forward. Um, but but the fact uh, is that this is not just about the Serum Institute of India or India. It's it's the fact that. Um, how can an international mechanism rely on very few suppliers? Um, and th- this, was, this was the elephant in the room. Uh, they should have addressed this. And this is just one of the um, many shortcomings, as it were. Um, the, the, the other thing I wanted to add in the context of the COVAX facility is also its governance. Um, and you will see, that you have mentioned certain recent critiques, and they also explicitly discuss, for example, um, by The Lancet, um, on the fact that uh, the COVAX facility was shaped uh, by donors uh, to the facility. And that means that they were able to work against the goal of ensuring equitable access. Um, There was no mechanism where countries who had um, ordered bilateral doses were not prevented from buying further doses from the COVAX facility. In this case, for example, Canada, there should have been such mechanisms. Uh, but but there were no such mechanisms because at the at the fundamental um fundamentally uh covax facility is built on equality but not equity uh, and we know that those are two different concepts um and and i think that that's one of the main reasons where um where they have sort of uh, struggled to to meet uh, the demand from from countries who have basically has has have, have had no option
1: right thank you uh, just a little side question on the governance of of, of gavi um you published an in-depth article um uh, going into this and basically um demonstrating that civil society has very little room at the table if not almost no room at the table right
2: um yes a number of civil society organizations have uh, have sort of uh, Raised raised their concerns um, with with Gavi in terms of um, uh, you know uh, taking some of their positions uh, into consideration. Um, the fact that uh, their views were were often not uh, not taken in, and um, and uh, the fact that it's uh, it's a very um, sort of top down approach um, in international development uh, that that has been. Uh, sort of adopted and practiced uh, at global health agencies uh, such as Gavi and by extension at the COVAX facility. These are some of the opinions of civil society uh, organizations who have struggled to get their voice heard uh, at, as the COVAX facility was taking shape. Um, um, and yes, we we reported on this. Um, and uh, I think those concerns have have not gone away. But but the warnings, Uh, that some of the civil society organizations had flagged have unfortunately
1: come into fruition. Yes, indeed, and as you probably know, Corporate Europe Observatory has also published um, research showing that uh, also the European Commission um, it has very limited access for for critical civil society on the issue of the the trips waiver. Um, and, and I propose that we uh, dive into this issue because you have already mentioned several times that the real um, problem is the uh, production capacity huh? and and um, um therefore, um, South Africa and India have um, um, proposed in uh, October uh, 2020, a proposal to have a temporary waiver of intellectual property rights. Um, now, um, as we know, uh, Europe has uh, basically been opposing this. Um, but then a few months ago, um, the US Biden uh, administration suddenly announced that they would be open to this uh, South Africa India proposal and um, want to negotiate on it. Um, can you can you explain a bit, what was the impact of, of that announcement by the US uh, in Geneva and in, in, in diplomatic circles?
2: Uh, sure. Um, I think depending on who you speak to, uh, some would say that they had anticipated this um, because a few months Uh, A few weeks prior to that announcement, uh, there was a statement by USTR um, sort of um, signaling that they might take this position. And for others, it was uh, totally unexpected. Um, But I think it's safe to say that uh, definitely the moment uh, of the Biden administration agreeing to engage in text-based negotiations on the waiver. it it was it it has been a watershed uh, what it will ultimately mean will remain to be seen uh, because uh, you know the americans want to discuss the waiver in the context of only vaccines but not diagnostics and therapeutics and so on uh, but but undoubtedly um, it was a it was a critical moment um, that further isolated uh, the eu in its opposition EU and other countries and a few other countries in their opposition to the proposal Um, and interestingly even within the WTO um, I think um, um, some people and even uh, sort of hardcore trade experts in Geneva found it hard to understand this striking departure from stated American policy on IP. Uh, you know with over 25 years of trips agreement um, this has never happened and right now we are talking about a blanket temporary suspension of ip rules under the trips agreement and this is a pretty bold proposal and the us to even agree to sit at the negotiating table to discuss something like this uh, is is uh, quite uh, pathbreaking and notable uh, but like i said uh, we will we'll have to see um what the real intent is um, and how far the US is willing to accommodate some of the questions um, raised raised by by South Africa, India, and more than 60 other co-sponsors of the TRIPS waiver proposal. the U.S. the the U.S. for for example has also said that they are unwilling to commit to a deadline on when to wrap up these negotiations. Uh, so so we'll have to actually wait and watch. Uh, but as far as that specific decision of them to engage in text-based negotiations is concerned, it's it's definitely um, interesting and and uh, and significant.
1: Yes, indeed, and it uh, basically surprised also many uh, politicians and policymakers in the European Union, uh, because uh, let's face it, the U- Europe always wants to be the moral um, leader of the world um, in in how it does politics and geopolitics, but it was a bit um, uh, taken by surprise. Um, so. Um, as it stands, the, the European Union is still the biggest hurdle uh, to 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 achieve um, this uh, this trips waiver. Um, as it is now uh, in July, um, the, the negotiations in Geneva will be um, yeah very important. It's uh, crunch time, as it's uh, as it's called. Um, how what kind of echoes do you pick up from uh, diplomats or other sources from the global south how how is in general the european position uh, being perceived in geneva
2: i think um the european position has has evolved um, over a period of time um you know, from October 2020, when the proposal was first tabled to now, there has been, uh, you know, uh, a change in in the EU position in terms of acknowledging um, acknowledging that uh, potentially there could be a problem and how do we uh, begin to solve this? So one of the things that they have said is, let's talk about uh, ironing out the difficulties in trips, flexibilities, uh, for instance, compulsory licensing and so on. Um, So I think, I would say that um, people are still being cautious about how the EU will move, um, but there's also some degree of impatience. Obviously, after more than seven, eight months of discussing this several times, discussing this proposal in several times in uh, you know bilateral consultations, formal informal trips meetings, several rounds at the General Council meeting, and so on and so forth. Um, they they definitely want uh, they definitely want the EU to to engage uh, in text based discussions um, and also to come up with um, you know concrete alternate proposals. Um, the latest meeting that happened um, earlier this week, um, the EU, for instance, suggested that um, you know tech transfer is key and it's important to to uh, enable tech transfer to address the scarcity uh, in the production of vaccines. So, for instance, Pakistan has asked um, EU to come up with a concrete proposal on what this discussion on tech transfer can look like. Um, so, so I think um, you know people people are still um, guarding, and they hope that uh, um, some co-sponsors of the proposal hope that uh, they will be able to um, bring. Um, European Union on board um, and some of them are open to discussing, for instance, uh, the EU proposal on making tweaks to the compulsory licensing. They see it as an opportunity uh, to, to get the EU to the table to talk about TRIPS flexibilities. Um, and I'll also add that, um, you know, even a year ago or, or two years ago before the pandemic, if you, had told, if you had told someone that the EU is willing to talk about compulsory licensing uh, and how to improve the implementation, that would have been a You know, um, a a welcome um, sort of development for most access to medicines uh, advocates, for example. But now the goalposts have shifted, as I have argued um, in in my reporting, uh, that nothing short of uh, a blanket uh, temporary suspension of IP rules is what uh, supporters of the TRIPS waiver proposal are pushing for. Um, so while while developing countries, in my understanding, are open to discussing the EU proposal, um, they they have made clear that uh, they are still intent on on pushing through the waiver proposal.
1: Right now, you recently published an interview with the EU ambassador uh, to the WTO in Geneva. Um, what is your feeling after? Uh, Uh, Having um, published this interview, will the European Union really play a constructive role in reaching an agreement? Because, um, well, to be very blunt, our um, observations are that they really will try to water down um this uh, this uh, proposal or at least try to derail or 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 to even to derail it via for example these proposals on on compulsory licensing um wh- what is your what is your um, assessment of that
2: um, at this at this point um it's it's anyone's guess how how the negotiations will unravel but just to make it clear uh, also to the listeners that you know apart from the eu you have also other other countries uh including uh switzerland uh, norway uh, mexico um, and the uk expressing uh, you know reservations uh, and essentially uh Countries who are not not happy with the with the waiver proposal. Um, so, as far as uh, the recent interview that we published with the EU ambassador to the WTO, um, it emerged that. Um, it's it's all, always more nuanced than just black and white. So so there are there are several elements to the EU strategy uh, at the WTO and also in the wider field of global health. So you have to look at it collectively. Uh, so as far as the WTO is concerned, they they have said they have articulated that they would want a multi pronged approach. Uh, that would mean taking into account trade facilitation, export restrictions. Um, and and elements to address intellectual property, which is basically um, addressing how compulsory licensing can be implemented better and so on. Um, So so I think they're talking about a range of issues, but there's one critical distinction, which is that they've they've spoken in terms in, in the language of a declaration and that would mean um, from my uh, limited understanding that it's a, it's a it's going to be a political declaration that all wto members will sign up for at the time of the ministerial of the wto later this year but a political declaration as we have seen is does not have the same impact as a legal suspension um of ip rules which the waiver is demanding um which will be uh, which which will be Binding and will become instantly applicable should a country choose to adopt the waiver. Um, so I think, um, in some ways, um, the EU is selling it as a pragmatic approach um, that can be that can be uh, you know quickly negotiated and we'll have countries on board. Um, but uh, but I think that's that's for me that's a that's a critical distinction that um, they they are uh, banking on. Uh, a wider um, political declaration on trade and health that goes beyond only intellectual property. Um, And and for the record, I think other countries um, are open to the wider political declaration, but um, I don't think there's a quid pro quo that we will have a political declaration, but not the waiver. Um, So so we'll see how it goes. Um, And as I said, um, some of the the elements of the EU approaches um, are are definitely um, uh, important, for, for countries to discuss including improving implementation of trips flexibilities and so on um, but um, what's what's interesting is that um, they are they seem to be open to discussing um, not just vaccines but also therapeutics and diagnostics at least that's what emerged in our recent interview uh, which is interesting and slightly different from from the american position but but you know as as a reporter i'm not inside the room so we'll not be able to uh, really um, make the judgment on on the intent um, of of how this you know how these negotiations will play out um for instance um uh, recently, India has pointed out that a lot of countries have agreed for text-based negotiations, but uh, but they they suspect that the real intent may not be there. So, um, so having said that, um, um, I think it's I think it's definitely positive that that the EU um, is willing to discuss and it has managed to, if I'm not mistaken, ensure that the EU proposals um, are discussed. Um, you know, in parallel to the TRIPS waiver discussions, although the EU proposal at the WTO came up only in June, uh, in early June this year, um, and yet uh, you know they are being discussed uh, practically at the same time. Um, so I hope uh, I have uh, answered your
1: question. Yes, thank you very much. Um, now um from our side uh looking at it from brussels um we are we are slightly worried um for 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 seeing signals like for example the european commission you know recently the european parliament has voted for a resolution calling for a Crips waiver basically to cut it short um and then um the uh the european commission is basically um Um, selling this to uh, EU member states and and also via the Geneva delegation to basically downplay the importance of such a vote in the European Parliament by saying, well, it was actually, there were some uh, MEPs that voted wrongfully and um, it's not really uh, clear cut. I've I've had the impression that I also read this a bit in in your interview with the EU ambassador, uh, downplaying the the positioning of the only elected uh, uh, European institution uh, being the European Parliament. Um, There is also, Signals of um, you know MEP saying uh, to us um, that actually behind the curtains, um, some uh, political groups uh, like the Christian Democrats uh, say that um, you know the, the the importance is to keep the uh, European competitiveness and for example German MEP say, well sorry but uh, the the importance of biotech and the mRNA technology is super important, so. When I then hear you talk about um, that Europe wants to discuss technology transfer, I mean, there is CTAP, right? And it's still an empty shell, as far as I know. Um, so shouldn't we be a bit weary of this kind of European um, spin and saying like, yeah, we want to discuss this, but there is this, still this emergency at the same time going on. So I don't really see how those two, the emergency and then the long term talks on technology transfer um, you know, how those two fit together. Do, do, do you agree with this, yeah, somehow skeptical view or how do you see that? No,
2: that's um, that's, a, that's a great question um, actually. And and in fact, um, I wanted to add earlier also that, um, you know, EU pushing for technology transfer in the context of the TRIPS waiver discussions, it, it actually says that um, uh, the TRIPS waiver proposal introduces legal uncertainty uh, as, as far as tech transfer issues are concerned um and uh, so uh, it's it's interesting that you bring up CTAP because it's uh, it's um, it's vitally important and it is connected connected uh, to to this um but before i get into that uh, this question of european parliament um, res- resolution to to support tech space negotiations of the waiver proposal is is definitely important um but uh, I think it also highlights, uh, highlights the fact that uh, we know that the uh, European Union is not a monolith or a uniform entity. Uh, different member states have different motivations. Uh, you've had uh, European Union member states not only support uh, the TRIPS waiver, uh, but also, for, for instance, um, Spain and the Netherlands and so on are parties to the CTAP, uh, which, which makes it always interesting. But at the WTO, they vote as a bloc. Um, but it has also been pointed out that let's say France might have had said um, something to the effect of supporting uh, text-based discussions, but what does it really mean in practice? Um, so a big European Union uh, member state can, can go and make positive statements about the TRIPS waiver, but at the same time, the actions might differ. Um, and as you will see, uh, that 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 France is a backer of the new uh, mrn mrna tech transfer hub um under the aegis of the who um, that at the face of it uh, could be multilateral in nature but it but as far as we understand uh, will 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 probably end up being um uh, you know a bilateral tech transfer which is which is different from what the CTAP hopes to achieve so there are these uh, you know parallel um, um And simultaneous uh, dynamics that are unfolding uh, both at the WHO and the WTO and and the EU is actually uh, deftly uh, making its moves um keeping its uh you know trade and diplomatic objectives in mind um so so let's it, it'll be interesting to see how the uh whether the the tech transfer debate will actually uh come up with some specific features in the context of the wto um uh, that 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 remains uh that remains to be seen um and um, and on the ctap itself uh yes it has it has um as far as we understand has remained um an an empty shell um and uh the, the new tech transfer hubs that have been announced, uh, that's under the aegis of the COVAX uh, manufacturing task force, uh, whose goals um, are, are uh, different from, from what the CTAP promises to do, which is namely open licensing um, and greater sharing of technology, you know, know-how and so on.
1: Okay, thanks a lot, Pretty, for this talk. I'm afraid this is all that we have time for now, but um, uh, thanks very much for joining us and uh, I wish you all the best of luck. We've come to the end of this podcast and I want to thank you for listening. A special thanks goes out to my guests, Dimitri Einikel and Priti Patnaik, for sharing their knowledge with us and for taking action. I also want to thank Marc Baroner and Jan Callewaert for the technical assistance. And if you like this podcast, and if you value the work of CEO, then please support us to stay independent. We are a small organization that works fully independently of funding from EU institutions and corporations. So every single donation, small or big, is needed to help us fight the hold of big business over European policymaking. Have a great summer, and... Stay tuned, stay safe.